listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kiddies! So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs> Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. The Wicked Library is intended for mature audiences only. So if you're not mature, get out. Get out now while the getting's good. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boys and girls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> And welcome to episode number 733 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and this is the season 7 season finale. What a season it's been. We kicked off with episode number 701 back in September of 2016, and then brought you a new show every other week, and actually on occasion, weekly, because we had too many stories to share to do it every other week. We also added Patreon support this year, which has allowed us to bring back our good friend Nico from We Talk of Dreams. He adds beautiful custom music to each episode that he's a part of. And, of course, we've been able to hire some of the best voice actors out there. 
some who are regularly heard on another show that's known for keeping you from sleeping. And I've really been honored to work with all of them. Very talented voice actors, very professional. Man, they do a great job, and I'm sure you've enjoyed it too. Now, we'll be back in a couple of months, but I'll still be working on the show while we're not putting out episodes, doing things like mailing out our Patreon rewards, reading submissions that have piled high on the librarian's desk, recording, editing, scoring. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you'll actually still be getting stories to listen to while we're on break, some of which will be exclusive to Patreon. So it's a great time to sign up to support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For everyone else, we'll be back for a Christmas episode hosted by Nelson W. Piles and then back for season eight in February. We also suggest you head over to victoriaslift.com for stories by many of the same authors you've heard on this show. Obviously, I can't name all of them because we have a ton of great authors, but just a few that you'll hear if you listen to The Lift are C. Brian Brown, Jessica McHugh, Gwendolyn Keist, K.B. Goddard, Nelson W. Piles, and today's featured author, Brooke Wara. We truly do rely on your support to keep the show coming. The number of stories we produce and the number of voices you hear is directly tied to the level of support we receive. A big personal thank you from me, to all of you who took the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. We've had so many great reviews from you, and not only from a show standpoint does that help keep the show on the charts and help us attract new authors, but for me personally, on the days when the amount of work that I put in seems overwhelming, your reviews and your support on Patreon remind me why I do it, so I really appreciate it. If you enjoy the interviews at the end of the show, don't forget to check out the Ninth Story Podcast with Jeanette and Alexander. They do interviews and discussions with storytellers of all types. I also want to make sure that I say thank you to everyone for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. The show is all about supporting the independent authors, the independent artists, the composers, and your support of indie horror fiction means more than you know. It's great that we are able to feature and showcase so many talented people on this show, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting us and for supporting them. And now, two stories by Brooke Wara. Our first story is told brilliantly by one of our executive producers, Cynthia Lohman. It's a tale about a young girl struggling to be accepted and how fate ties her to a boy. Sleepyhead by Brooke Wara. At the company picnic, baby Laney pushes her husband around in his wheelchair and calls him her sleepyhead. Baby Laney isn't really no baby. She's my daddy's age, but they always been calling her baby since she was born. Her husband is a drooling fool on account of he got his head split wide open by a chainsaw that fell on his head. Daddy says, poor old Mr. Laney. That's what he calls Mr. Laney, poor old, but baby and everybody else calls him sleepyhead. Wandered off the logging site and through the slough for three whole days before they found him sitting there with his bare feet in the muck, the skeeters biting at his exposed brains, staring at the will-o'-the-wisps over the swamp. 
Daddy says, poor old Mr. Laney, that poor old bastard would be better off if he'd had the goddamn smarts to just go ahead and die out there, but he didn't, and now baby's got to push him around in his chair and wipe his chin and kiss his droopy eyelids and coo at him like a baby and call him her sleepyhead, and I hate it. The kids at school call me Mrs. Sleepyhead and say it through their slickery smiles like it's the dirtiest thing you could say, like they calling me the S-word you call bad girls. What they mean is I should marry poor old Mr. Laney, that poor bastard, because I be falling asleep so much. It ain't my fault I'm so tired all the time on account of my daddy is a drunk up a hollering up a storm all night long every night. I heard my mama tell the doctor that, but he says I got something called narcolepsy, which sounds like a Tatlin disease to me, and he must be wrong about that, because seems to me all the kids at school has that disease, way they're always shouting in my ear so Miss Henry catch me sleeping, or tugging on my braid, or oh god the time Jimmy Nelson snapped my bra right in sixth period. I have to try not to get mad or embarrassed, because then I surely fall asleep. As soon as I'm ready to wallop them, my muscles go all wobbly, and I'm out for the count. Sleepyhead, sleepyhead, they sing through their slickery smiles, like it's a cuss word and I'm dirty. They know if I get all worked up, I'll pass out, and they get their jollies. Jimmy Nelson himself is here at the company picnic since his daddy owns the lumber yard my daddy works at. Daddy always spits when he says we may be poor, but at least we ain't no goddamn Catholics and something else called capless, which he says so spitty and angry, I think it must be a pretty bad cuss word I'm not supposed to say. I only knows it has something to do with the Russians being mean where my daddy comes from. Right now, Jimmy Nelson and me managed to get paired up as a couple, a couple, in the three-legged race, and now we're getting our legs tied up together, my right to his left, and he's saying it ain't fair on account of his right leg is his good leg, and God knows he'll probably have to drag me along the whole race when I fall asleep halfway across the field. But I don't get mad, because I can't think about anything he's saying long enough to be mad, because, oh my God, he smells good. I've been staring at the back of Jimmy Nelson's head for four grades now, and I've been noticing how his blonde hair curls against the skin on his neck and the birthmark shaped like a half moon I want to press my fingernail into. I never smelled him or any boy so up close before besides my daddy, who smells like sawdust and rolling tobacco and pickled herring on account of he eats it for lunch every day with his beer. Jimmy Nelson smells just like a cold pool. A cold, clear pool on the hottest day of summer, just like right now. I feel sticky and dusty standing next to him being so clean. I can feel my eyes drooping down and all the muscles in my body going all wobbly. But Jimmy Nelson pitches me hard when he sees this and we start running all tied together. My bare, skinny, skinned up leg working against his long, muscly legs. All around us, older folks and babies are falling over and their families are laughing and shouting and taking about a thousand pictures. Jimmy Nelson pinches me hard again and is pulling me toward the forest at the edge of the field and showing me a rolled up cigarette he's got in his fist. 
I know I'll get whipped so good if my daddy ever catches me smoking, but I just gotta know what it'd be like so private on my own with Demi Nelson in the woods. Besides, I've been stealing my daddy's smoke since I was nine. He pulls me and him both into the woods and says we can't smoke it till we get to his special place he want to show me. We walk and trip through the forest till it's thicker and thicker and you can smell the slough everywhere. I know where we are when I see a pair of old muddy boots stuck in the muck of the swamp. This is where they found Sleepyhead. And Jimmy Nelson's probably brought me here to scare me or make fun of me or something and I get so mad. I feel everything getting fuzzy and wobbly. He's snickering at me, and here I've been thinking stupid things about how we might be friends, and I am so mad. I know, and he knows, I'm about to pass out cold. I push through the foggy feeling in my head and start trying to rip the rope pot that's got me stuck with him, but it just gets tighter and tighter. It's all wet from the slough, and I'll never get it off. God damn it, Jimmy Nelson, I yell, and when he starts really laughing, I swipe him in the side of his face, and he looks so shocked, and it feels so good, I do it again. I do it again, and again, and again, and I fall asleep. I wake up, and it's mostly dark now, and I reckon out loud our daddies must both be drunk by now to Jimmy Nelson, but he's still and quiet next to me. There's wasps everywhere, and they stung us all up from wrecking their nest when we was wrestling around. The smoke is laying on top of the mud, and I take it and light it with my own lighter and sit and smoke and wait for him to get off his lazy butt and help me find our way out of this swamp. But he never says nothing for a long time. I sit for a long time trying to burn the rope apart, but it's too wet and ain't coming off. Jimmy Nelson don't even try to help me none. I start to get a sick feeling, and I hear all kinds of noises around us and think maybe Jimmy Nelson is being quiet and still so the -the will-o'-the-wisps don't know we're here. I try to stay quiet too, but little whimpers keep eking out of me and I start to cry. It's dark and cold and too quiet. I grab Jimmy Nelson's hand and he don't pull away. Jimmy, I'm scared, I say, but then I fall asleep. It's light again when I wake up, and God, I have to pee right in front of a boy. But I just gotta go so bad, I can't help it. And I tell Jimmy Nelson, please don't you look at me. I'm pretty sure I hear him snickering on the other side of the tall grass where he laying while I stretch my leg far out and pee. God damn this goddamn rope, and the stupid three-legged race, and God damn those bees that made him so quiet and still and... I wake up and I'm laying in my own pee in swamp mud and I tell Jimmy Nelson I'm so hungry now, but he don't say nothing just like I knew he would. He just keeps staring at me with that dumb look on his face, like he needs my help, and I know he does. I know it, but I can't carry him out of here. I don't even know where we are. I pat his hand, it's all bloated and purple, the skin on it so tight and swollen from the bee stings, and tell him to try to sleep while I think of something. He won't close his eyes, so I reach out and close them for him. Sometimes I wake up and fall asleep so many times I don't know what day or time it is anymore. I drag us over to where it's more dry and there are some wild salmon berries growing there, and offer Jimmy Nelson some, but he don't want none. 
so I eat them till the juice is all over my face and hands and dress. I tell Jimmy Nelson how bad my mama's gonna whoop me for ruining my dress out here smoking with him in the slough, how she's gonna take a belt to me for making her worry so much, and with half the town out looking for us in the woods, and then I start to think of what Jimmy Nelson's mama's face is gonna look like, and her voice gonna sound like when I come dragging him behind me out of the woods, and this makes me feel so sick, I puke right there in front of Jimmy Nelson, and when I fall asleep, my head thunks down on his chest. He really is cold, just like a pool, too. I knew it. I tell Jimmy Nelson lots of things since we're stuck out here anyway. And he just listens and doesn't once make fun of me. Even when I tell him the only boy who ever tried to kiss me was Ned Jerry, who goes to special classes. And when I tell him all about my daddy being a drunk. He doesn't tease me on account of his daddy as a drunk, too. We even hold hands. And I'm so happy I think my heart could just burst open, but I just can't stay awake. Sometimes I wake up and Jimmy Nelson just lets out a little sigh, like he's so happy I'm okay, and I take his hand again and squeeze it so he knows I am, and we don't have to talk anymore if he's tired. It's getting dark again, and I can't look at his face so much. It looks funny. It makes me feel that sick feeling, and then I fall asleep, and I can't do that if we're ever going to get out of this mess. Maybe if we get out of here, they can make his face look normal again. I see a wasp crawl out of his mouth and I puke and pass out again. I'm smashing the rope around our legs with a rock and it's coming free when I hear the yelling and shouting and our names being called from a ways off. I look down at Jimmy Nelson right as the rope breaks and he is just staring at me and he's telling me what I have to do. I'm dizzy and going wobbly. I'm so nervous, but I bite my lip and do it anyway because he wants me to. Later, Jimmy Nelson's mama's face was even worse than I ever thought, and her screaming was so loud, I had to cover my ears in the back of the ambulance. And even at the hospital, it took two nurses to pry my hands off my ears, and they came away all bloody. And oh God, she won't ever stop screaming inside my head, ever. For the funeral, everybody gets together in the big church. The goddamn Catholic Church, Daddy says. But not today, because us gotta respect the dead. I say excuse me and leave during prayers, and no one stops me. No one stops me from doing much of anything anymore on account of I was there. I'm special now, because I was there when it happened. I know I got some time, because my daddy and his daddy, too, will be getting good and drunk together tonight, like they have been every night since I got found and Jimmy Nelson didn't. I memorized every inch of the way out of that forest when they carried me out, and I get back to the slough pretty good and easy with only a little mud on my good church shoes. I push the old dangling roots over and crawl into the hollow of the old tree and lay down there with Jimmy Nelson. I tell him all about how it was so clever of me to hide him here and tell them I lost him in the swamp and show him the goddamn rope and how my daddy held his mama and said they ain't never be able to find you in that old slough no matter how hard they try and look. But I don't tell him how his mama wailed and beat on my daddy's chest and looked at me like she hated me for not being in the swamp too. 
or instead. Jimmy Nelson sighs, and I say, Shh, I know I gots to move you soon so's they don't come a-looking this way. I snuggle in close to his shoulder, and his head rolls toward mine, and I tell him, Shh, 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 shh my sleepy head, and reach up, brush the flies off his face, and close his eyes. Next up, we have a special story that examines how one man deals with terrible loss. Told by the amazingly talented Mike Delgadio and Nicole Goodnight. Irreconcilable Differences by Brooke Wara Harvey lay watching his wife sleep for a long time, the rise and fall of her breathing, before he allowed himself to sit up and begin the act of quietly dressing he buttoned a greasy flannel over a stained undershirt, pulled up his khaki pants but left the suspenders dangling, slipped one calloused foot and then the other into a pair of ratty house slippers. He gently picked up the house keys off the bureau, using two hands, so as not to jingle them and wake Marie. She snored gently, rolling into the warm, empty space he had left in the bed. He turned the knob slowly, left the room, crept through the dark hallway past the dusty, doily-covered picture frames, past the sunken furniture, past the ancient one-eyed cat they called Cat. Stepping out the front door, down the weed-addled, broken stone path, and through the gate out onto the street, he shook off the cobwebs of his existence in the house, put on his walking hat, and whistled on his way to the store. Years before, when he and Marie had first moved there, shortly after their nuptials, It had been a crisp, pretty neighborhood. Pastel houses, neat lawns, shiny cars. Now, everything seemed to sag. The colors faded, the gardens overgrown. The soda shop was an adult bookstore now. Most of the families had moved away. Not Harvey and Marie, though. People often asked them why they didn't move away from a place that held so much tragedy for them. A place that was going to hell in a handbasket and in a hurry. Florida is nice, they said. Marie could join a sewing circle. Harvey could play golf. But they just shook their heads and said, We'll stay. Why, we couldn't possibly go so far away from the children. Marie would say with a smile, and people would look away. Harvey still liked it here anyway. It wasn't so bad. He waved at the neighbors, stepped out of the way of kids zipping past on bikes, and stopped to help one little girl whose chain had come loose. At the store, he greeted the familiar clerk who already had six cold, sweating bottles of malt liquor in a paper sack for him, waiting on the counter. Harvey counted out his quarters and dimes, scooped up his purchase, and walked the few sunny blocks back home. He waited a long time on the porch, listening for sounds of Marie stirring inside before deciding he heard none and went in. There would be hell to pay if she caught him with the liquor. There was hell to pay every day. Inside, he heard the upstairs shower running. She would be getting ready for one of her services. Once weekly meetings in the community center where she advised lonely, bereaved people on the habits of angels, methods of communicating with the dead, and gave tarot readings. She kept their money in a little metal tin. Sometimes they didn't have any, 
and their heirloom bracelets and discarded wedding rings would rattle around inside it. They loved her. They worshipped her, he thought, and squeezed his eyes tight, listening. It hadn't always been this way. They had been good Baptists once, but that was before. He passed their bedroom door, heard Marie humming in the shower, some hymn, something they knew from before, from church days. In the hallway, he stepped on Cat, who let out a murderous howl, scratched his leg through the slacks, and took off like a bolt of lightning down the stairs. The humming from the shower stopped momentarily, and Harvey glanced around him for a place to hide his beer. He waited an agonizing eternity of seconds before Marie took up her song again, and he let out a breath he had been holding in. At the end of the hall, he stopped outside the last door on the left. It was decorated with yellowing, curling pages of a coloring book. The colors of the waxy crayons had dried up and chipped away mostly, and the dark printed outlines faded. Puppies and kittens and Easter bunnies frolicked here for decades, frozen in time. He knocked. Lizzie? He didn't know why he knocked, or why he waited for an answer. Harvey carefully, slowly turned the well-worn knob and stepped into the quiet darkness of his daughter's room. A tea service sat in the far corner. Decrepit, stuffed bears, grimy, glass-eyed porcelain babies, and a raggedy end doll sat perched on chairs around a table. Harvey pulled up a chair alongside them, nodded a greeting, and took a tall, cool bottle out of his sack. If this day had been like any other ordinary day of Harvey's life, he would have sat quietly in the dark, talking to his grinning, unblinking friends, and getting good and properly shit-faced, until his wife found him later in the evening, fed him dinner, and berated him into bed, where he would flop face down, still in his smelly clothes. But today was not an ordinary day. Somehow Harvey had felt it upon waking, had seen it in the ethereal, hazy sunlight of the morning, had tasted it in the bitter liquor, had smelled it in the neglected dust motes that floated around him in Lizzie's room. Harvey was not sure how long he had been sitting there, listening to the music box on Lizzie's chest of drawers as the ballerina inside spun round and round, how long he had been singing along to its tinkling tune, an old familiar song, a love song from his youth. He was mostly through his bottles now, and felt as though he were waking after a long drive, a long journey through a dark tunnel. The shadows in the room had shifted, the dimensions of the walls seemed fuzzier, the distance from his place at the table to the door, the way out, seemed greater. He had the eerie sense that nothing existed outside this room. If he opened the door, there would only be a never-ending dark space, a vacuum of sound and light. He no longer heard Marie in the next room, or the birds outside chirping their mad duets, or the children screaming past in the streets. On the dresser, the lid to the music box snapped closed. A girl was standing there. Her silhouette stood out in the darkness, which was unusual, but he didn't react. There was a little girl in his dead little girl's room. Why not? I'm sorry. I just wanted to hear it. Harvey said nothing. Just sat there, marveling at his own complete lack of surprise at finding this specter of a girl in his dead child's bedroom. 
the little girl seemed to remember herself and gave a small curtsy. Shall we go now? This, too, seemed a normal thing for her to say. All right, then, Harvey said, tucking a mostly full bottle of malt liquor into his sweater. You won't be needing that, the girl said, grimacing at the smell of the open bottles about the tea table. Right, Harvey said, patting the bottle. But if you don't mind, it'll give me some comfort. She nodded and seemed to accept this as an explanation. She held out her hand, and he took it. The two of them stepped outside the door. Harvey felt a wave of seasickness, and then everything went black. There was a pounding ache in Harvey's head. Where was he? A flickering light, the sound of unseeing people talking and walking, crying. He wasn't moving, but he had the feeling of moving, rocking. He opened his eyes. He was on the floor of an empty hallway. There was what looked like a nurse's station, but it was absolutely empty. The girl stood over him, a look of motherly concern on her youthful face. You had a bit of a... of a stumble. It's the drink, he said, and looked around the hallway for his bottle. Finding it, he brushed the dust off and took a sip. Right as rain, he said. He sat up and leaned against the mirrored walls, but did not stand. Why today? Harvey said aloud, without meaning to. The child regarded him with dull brown eyes. I have been visiting you often. Harvey felt the hair raise on his arms. There was an undertone, a current beneath the melody of her voice that did not belong to a child. But then Harvey looked at the way she turned her feet, pigeon-toed in her familiar Mary Jane shoes, and shook his head, shook the sound of her words out of his head, and told himself he was being ridiculous. Why, this was a child. I didn't mean to break it. She was suddenly sheepish and fumbling inside the pockets of her little jeans. You see, I had a music box too. It's very dear to me. I saw Lizzie's. I saw your daughter's collection and thought, it was so great how the little dancers popped up when they opened, and... She stopped speaking suddenly and seemed embarrassed of herself, as if the words had come rushing out without her permission, and Harvey got the distinct feeling that she wasn't used to talking to adults, or anyone, much. He laughed to show her his good-naturedness, and she gave a nervous laugh in return. A little blue one with the jewels? Harvey asked. Is that the one you broke? I did notice the ballerina stopped going around a while ago. You aren't mad at me? No, he said and patted her shoe. So you've been hanging around that dusty old room then? Yes, I listened to your stories. Her head cocked to one side and whispered something Harvey couldn't hear. Harvey had been sitting in that room every night for over 20 years getting drunk and telling his daughter about his day at the shop before he closed it down for good. What her mother had left for him in the dinner, his distaste for the hangers-on she brought home for the tea and Ouija board games, his outright humiliation at the donations they took in, the horror of all the tiny graves that came after hers. After that sunny day, she chased a ball into the street, and the clouds went over the sun forever. Not exactly bedtime stories for a nice little girl like you, Harvey said. She shrugged, 
liked listening to you talk to her, to Lizzie. Harvey thought about all those hundreds of lonely hours spent in the dark, talking to a ghost, and decided it was nice to know that someone had been listening after all. Well, he said, let me see this music box of yours. She held it out to him, but in such a way that he understood he was only to look and not touch. He had just enough time to make out a rectangular shape, an eerie glow, when it seemed the world lurched, the lights flickered, and the music box tumbled onto the hallway floor. She cried out, scooping it up, almost motherly, delicately, like handling a baby bird, and tucked it away again inside her coat. That's a fine music box, Harvey said, in an attempt to dispel her uneasiness. She blinked and looked around as if she had shown him something he shouldn't have seen, had let him in on a secret he wasn't supposed to know. I'm sure it plays a pretty tune. After a long, thoughtful look, she said, It doesn't have a dancer, though. Harvey stood and, taking the ghost child by the hand, spun her around. There. Now it does. (laughs) She laughed. The lights flickered violently for a moment. The merriment disappeared from her face. Do you know where you are? The doors at the end of the hallway creaked open, and beyond them lay a gleaming linoleum floor, white walls, and more long, wavering fluorescent lights. Barely visible, snowy figures ducked in and out of doorways. Nurses, Harvey thought. The white shadows appeared, disappeared, and reappeared like figures in the static of a television screen. Harvey blinked until they went away, and it was just an empty hospital hallway with the lights buzzing overhead. I would rather not go in there, Harvey said, taking a swig from his bottle, his hands shaking. He would need to get to the store for more liquor soon. You've spent a long time avoiding this place. Come on, I'll go with you. She placed her small hand in his. He squeezed it. They walked in small steps down the hallway that seemed to stretch and lengthen as they moved through it. They took their time. They talked about little things, how their echoing footsteps made them sound like giants if you closed your eyes, how the air here smelled like vanilla, and Harvey said he'd never been to a hospital that didn't smell like vanilla. When it couldn't be prevented any longer, they came to the nursery window. On the other side, four empty bassinets, three pink one blue. Those eerie white shadows darting between them, white caps barely visible out of the corner of the eye. What were their names? Don't. Harvey started to balk, but he knew he would have to. He would have to say their names, as he had not all these years. Sighing, he recited, Emily, 1968, Rachel, 73, Cynthia, in 1976, And, Michael, not even a day old, Michael, 1979. A word appeared and flickered in his peripheral vision, and when he tried to look directly at it, melted and became one of those tracers, those floaters you get from rubbing your eyes too hard. It flashed a dark color, like dripping blood, a horror movie trick. Since Harvey choked. But it wasn't, was it, Harvey? She'll have to come here too, someday. Marie, for what she did. 
Her voice seemed to come from all around and the girl was no longer standing next to him. The bright light around him had faded into darkness, focused, a vignette glowing around the nursery as he stood and watched a nurse, once he remembered, reach into one of the bassinets and tuck a blanket around the child inside. Harvey closed his eyes against the memory. Next, the nurse would lift the child, bring it to the window so he could admire. Harvey turned away and walked into the darkness, stumbling, only to find himself back in Lizzie's room. It was Lizzie's room, and yet it wasn't. The furniture was too big, the walls were strange and unfamiliar angles, the details of the bedspread and the knickknacks on the shelves were a blur. The dolls had no faces. It was a memory of Lizzie's room. Not real. And yet, he was in it. His head was pounding. He climbed into one of the oversized chairs around the tea table and took his bottle out of his sweater. He stared at it for a long time, but did not drink. Lizzie's death at the bright and sunny age of five had been an accident, a tragedy, a ball rolling into the street. Cliché and common and the kind of thing you knew happened, but not to you. Harvey would never forget that day, the hour, the moment. There had been a giggle, a wave, an absent-minded movement of the hand, the sound of sandals on pavement, a screeching of tires, and then the sun had been blotted out forever. Afterwards, a tiny casket, fake flowers, a parlor full of black polyester shadows clutching Tupperware dishes of casseroles and pies that would ultimately grow moldy, untouched in the icebox. Marie had taken to grief the way an artist might take to a paintbrush for the first time. She had spent months in a cap with a black veil for the eyes and smart black suits, serving tea to friends who came to call after the funeral, dabbing her eyes with a tissue gesturing at the framed photos of Lizzie that were everywhere now. Slowly, the visitors had waned, until it was just the two of them, Marie and Harvey, nursing their grief, and she had turned to him in the dark one night and suggested they try again. So they had, and along came Emily, fat and sweet, there one moment and gone the next. Sids, they called it. A tragedy, and after Lizzie, they whispered. Who could imagine such a loss? Try again, Marie had said in the dark, and the next several years had become a blur of baby showers, hospitals, casseroles, and tea in the darkened parlor. Harvey would come to associate the smell of talcum powder with death. Marie's closet filled with mourning attire, the house filled with people at first, offering condolences and then seeking answers. Marie seemed to stand a little taller, speak a little clearer, shine a little brighter. She held seances, bake sales, Bible studies. She became their confidant, their pastor, their charity. Surely this woman, who God had seen fit to make angels of all her children, had an inside line to the hereafter. Eventually, Marie was in such demand she had taken some of the donations and rented a meeting room at the hall. Harvey, for his part had retreated into his work, into his bottles, and into the dark of his firstborn's room. You've said nothing. A child's shadow raced across the surface of the mirror above the bureau, the windows. She was all around and nowhere at once. Her music box grew louder. How could I? 
Harvey thought of the doctor who pulled him aside after the last funeral. The doctor who had written an article on Marie's unspeakable loss after the first two babies had succumbed. They had come to blows in the pews. It's not right, the doctor had whispered at him, grabbing at his jacket. Harvey had been drunk. He tried to shrug him off. The doctor's accusations grew louder. People were staring. Harvey had hit the doctor then. The mourners had pulled them apart and escorted the doctor from the church. But Harvey had laid awake at night for years afterward, thinking about the knowledge in the man's eyes, the culpability he saw there. You have been a coward, Harvey. You were always a coward. He thought of all the coins clinking around in Marie's tin box. You had so many chances. Harvey thought of the nurses who had brought him coffee in the waiting rooms. You can make this right. He thought of the red eyes of the bereaved who showed up on his doorstep at all hours, as if waiting to obtain enlightenment after a long pilgrimage. You can go back and make it right, or stay here forever. Harvey thought of the photo of Marie as a child that had sat on the mantle for all these years. In it, she was about the age he had first met her, when she was the little girl who lived two houses down on the left, in the house with the crooked fence and a yappy dog, where he had fallen off his bike and she had run to help him. In this photo, her little gloves shone bright and white, and her eyes flashed green. The room around him shifted in his sight. Shadows became smaller, grayer, the gravity heavier. He could smell the dust and cat hair. The tinkling of the music box was gone. He still heard the echo of her voice in his head. Harvey thought of a little girl's hand in his. It had always been him and Marie. It always would be. Harvey looked around Lizzie's room. He picked up the broken music box from her dresser and put it in his pants pocket. Perhaps he could fix the spring the little dancer was on. He closed the door quietly behind him as he left. All around him the house was dark and quiet. It was the middle of the night. Marie would be home, sleeping now, in bed with her eye mask, one arm flung out to the side, a glass of water and her pill bottles on the night table, her little trinket box of coins close by. The cat eyed him as he crept through the living room and out to the woodshed. It circled his legs as he stoked the fire. He poured a sloppy can of food into the beast's bowl. It purred as it ate. He took the phone receiver from the cradle and placed it on the counter where it bleated its useless cry. He sat down and wrote a short note on the creamy stationery at Marie's desk, sealed it in an addressed envelope and put it in the mailbox on the porch. He climbed the stairs, washed the malt liquor smell from his face in the bathroom, brushed his teeth and put on a fresh sweater, before raising the axe he had carried from the woodshed over his wife's head. As he swung downward, he heard the tinkling of a music box grow and crescendo to a deafening roar. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? 
how many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to the lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio. Hey there! Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's zombie skin. So far into your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become the contamination? Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today. Welcome to the post-show interview. I'm Jeanette Andromeda from the Ninth Story Podcast, and currently tucked between the shelves with me is today's author, Brooke Wara. If you're a listener of the Lyft Podcast, then you may already be familiar with Brooke's work. She's written two episodes for season one of the Lyft, episode five, The Dance, and episode 16, Dandelion Tea, and... Since you're a listener of the Wicked Library, obviously, you're also already familiar with her. She was the author of one of our stories from the 2016 Halloween Live Wicked Library. Halloween. Did I say Halloween? Episode of Halloween. Woo! (laughs) And now we get to talk to her for realsies. Uh, Welcome to the Wicked Library. And uh, this is Brooke Wara, whom I have already just introduced. So now we're actually going to do the interview part. Hi, Brooke. Hi. (laughs) And today we had two of your stories on the Wicked Library. We had Sleepyhead and Irreconcilable Differences. And I'm a little proud of myself for not mushing through Irreconcilable... Oopsie, I already ruined it. But that word is a challenge for me. Yeah, it's a stumbling stumbling word. So the first thing I'd like to know, Brooke, is what attracts you to writing horror? Um... What attracts me to writing horror? I think ever since I was a child, I've always been sort of fascinated with the darker side of things. And I grew up in the 80s, and I'm sure you're familiar with all the um, the movies and the books and the stories that we grew up with around that time were all pretty dark stories. And so I always kind of had just a fascination with that. And in really childhood in particular and how that can be kind of a scary time where you're trying to figure out the world. 
So um, I had originally, as I became an adult, I think I wanted to be a really important literary writer, <laughs> but I just wasn't any good at that. And um, I, I've always kind of been a horror buff and really into the movies. And um, so I just tried my hand one day at, at writing horror and it, it everything kind of fell into place. So it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Do you, do you experiment with other genres as well or is horror where you feel at home? I, I feel like with every story, I'm, I'm kind of trying to experiment with different genres as kind of like a mashup of horror and, uh, fantasy or magical realism, um, or really just my, main thing with my stories is I'm really interested in the characters so that can come out a lot of different ways it's not necessarily just about trying to scare the audience but really having them get to know this character that that I know I think with both of your stories today that came through really really strong because that's what stuck out to me the most with both of them is it was so character focused and kind of terrifying with how intimate it was in particular sleepyhead <laughs> yes yeah i think um that it, it's if you if you get to know this person whether you like them or not um you kind of you don't want horrible things to happen to them so i i think the stronger the character the better the horror actually is because you uh you, you want to kind of protect them. Definitely. And, and with Sleepyhead, I just, uh, I felt so bad for this poor kid that everyone was bullying and, and then she finally had someone who'd listen. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's, it's a heartbreaker. Um, I was just going to ask, where did this story start for you? When did you initially write this one? I, um, I wrote that one, <laughs> in the spring of 2014 and it was almost immediately picked up by uh under the bed magazine and it which was kind of funny because i i didn't get to suffer through a whole lot of rejections until i tried my hand again at writing but uh the idea for that story had been with me for a very very long time i grew up in a very small town and my father was sort of, have you ever seen the movie Big Fish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is that man. Like he would tell us these wild stories. And when I was a kid, we were trick or treating and I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I had just gone to this woman's house and gotten in the car and, and your parents have to take you here because there's no neighborhoods or sidewalks. Like you drive several miles between homes. and. I get in the car and my dad starts telling me this wild story about how this woman's husband had been in a logging accident and the details of it were so gruesome um, that it just stuck with me my entire life and I thought well you know I'm gonna write a story sort of around I, he, he's one of the lesser characters but it kind of drives the horror of the story and I originally just wanted to write it for my dad and have him have him read it and I gave the story to him and he looked at me and said you know I made that up 
to scare you because it was Halloween. And it's just funny to me because I'm in my 30s now and I'm still finding like little anecdotes and stories that my dad had told me as a kid that that he just laughs at now and says, I totally made that up just to freak you out. (laughs) So I definitely come by the storytelling bit. Honestly, my dad has, he was a huge influence on me in that regard. I would definitely say so. And um, so Sleepyhead was one of your first published pieces, right? Or your first published piece? It was my very first published piece. Is it kind of exciting to go from having it be in print to having it be performed? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, I had really never considered... Um, I lo- I've always been a fan of podcasts and, and listened to them. And um, I had never considered writing for them until a couple of years ago um, when I was originally contacted by um, Dan and I started writing for The Lift and it's just become one of my favorite things. Like I, One of my favorite things about it is sometimes I'll write something that I'm not really sure how I feel about the story, but then once I hear it and everything that has been done with it and the acting, like it's, it's just a really neat thing to hear the interpretation. I'm super excited to hear how um, Sleepyhead comes across that way. Me too, because just reading it on the page, um, (laughs) there's, here's another question for you. Did you get nauseous when you were writing this? (laughs) Yes, yeah, I do that to myself pretty often. It's sort of funny because I'm one of those people that I can't stay on the side of blood um, I am afraid of the dark. Like I'm just this huge baby and people think it's hilarious because I write horror. And I'm like, I think, I think if you talk to enough people who write horror, a lot of us are that way. And this is almost our way of like kind of dealing with those issues. But, but yeah, I definitely, um, I have made myself sick. <laughs> Cause I, I think that came across really, <laughs> really well. Cause I also, as just reading it, I was going, oh no. Cause I think one of my uh, fears is to stumble upon a big nest of bees. Cause my dad is particularly allergic to them. So this was like a flashback to my childhood and being terrified that anytime I saw a bee, this would happen. It's right, just, yeah. you tapped in some, to some uh, pretty, pretty basic fears, at least for me, hopefully for everyone else listening too. You're all now, uh, you know, a little nauseous and maybe upset. (laughs) (laughs) That's the, that's the goal. (laughs) So since you are so easily turned off by blood and stuff, do you still end up watching or reading things that really push your comfort zone? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I do that uh, fairly often. I think there's kind of a sick little thrill in that. (laughs) (laughs) What's one thing recently that you experienced that just really pushed what you were willing to sit through? Oh my gosh, that's a... um, I I just re-watched Audition. Oh gosh. And that's such a great film. And it's so funny because I, I love it so much, but every time I watch it, when you get toward the end, I have to end up like pausing it and walking out of the room and getting a glass of ice water and then kind of taking a breath and and finishing it out. And I love horror because uh, the movies especially, they're so visual. And I, I I love that a lot of times the on a first watch with a movie, I'll, I'll have these feelings of 
you know, I'm, I feel thicker or it, it almost makes me angry that I've just sat through this movie. And that's how I know it's been a good movie and they've done their job because it definitely should kind of pull those feelings out of you. Where you're just watching through your fingers and feeling guilty about it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that one's a, a really good one. Everyone should watch that movie. <laughs> I agree. That is definitely one where uh, I, I don't know if I paused it, but it was definitely hard getting through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a it's, good way. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. So I'd also love to talk about irreconcilable differences. And we'll see how many times I can say that before it's total mush. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> what's the background on this story? Um, that one, uh, actually, there's a couple of inspirations that I had for that. Um, there had been a story in, I want to say the 60s, uh, where a woman's husband stood by her all through her trial and incarceration even though she had been convicted of uh, basically smothering several of their their infants and what's most interesting about that story is that she actually had been studied her family had been studied by a, a, a doctor and he had written several articles um, stating that SIDS was a hereditary issue which we now know it's not but for a good 20 years or so the medical community took this to be fact based on this woman's case wow and, and so nope. yeah and then her husband was the most fascinating part of that story to me because he never wavered in his in his um, support of her and so I just always thought I, I've always wondered what it was like to be in his head and then um, I'm pretty uh, I do draw from personal experience quite a bit and I uh, lost a couple of siblings when I was younger um, to sep they were entirely separate um, events, but I do draw a lot on that, that grief, um, and what it's like to go through losing somebody that close to you. And so that actually ends up in a lot of my stories. Sorry, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> I can see how, well, yeah, definitely. It's not, thankfully, knock on wood, I haven't lost a sibling, but I can imagine through what I've experienced just losing family members, how oh how how hard that would hit and it doesn't it never really stops hurting so i get why you would tap into that as you're writing yeah um, and that piece was actually um i i almost felt like i had been using those experiences so much that this irreconcilable differences was sort of my last real um time that i i felt like i needed to to write that out and work through it so um, it was. It took me several months to write it, actually. I can. I can definitely see why, because it felt real. The grief in this story felt very, very real. And just him sitting in that bedroom, it was heartbreaking. It really was. And was that kind of based on what you experienced or what your parents experienced and how they acted after your siblings passed away? Yes, absolutely. The um 
the characters are definitely I'm almost not sure if I'm going to allow my parents to read it or to listen to it um, because it's so it's so close to uh, the the experience that we all had after the fact dealing with things their own way and, and not really connected to each other in their grief which I think was the saddest part of that story yeah everyone was kind of in their own little bubble dealing with it yeah um, and I guess to kind of pull this in another direction because um, it is it is very difficult talking about grief and about loss uh, I also know a little secret about your story that Dan allowed me to bring up which was oh my that gosh. this initially started as an episode for The Lift. Is that true? Yes. Yes, <laughs> it did. It initially started um, out for The Lift. And then, um, and I knew as soon as I had the idea for it that it was going to be a little bit troublesome. Um, and so I was not shocked when he came back and said, "I, you know, he's uh, Victoria... We're all a bit protective of her and don't want her to actually witness or be a party to um, particularly violent events. And so we we did try to um, kind of collaborate and see if we were able to, to alter it in such a way. Um, but it just really took away from the integrity of the story, I felt, to change the, the ending or, or any of that. So... Um, we ended up deciding it it would be better piece for the Wicked Library, and he's picked up another one of my pieces for the lift. So. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm personally glad that this story came out the way that it did. I'm also curious what changed between the draft that we just listened to and what it was initially. What what did shift once you got uh, once Victoria wasn't involved? Um. Well. Once Victoria and I am still, um, there's a, a little bit of editing I still have to do on that one. Um, but I, I think it's almost a little bit more dramatic now because clearly the, the, the specter that he's communicating with is, is going to be somebody more involved directly with the story. So somebody from his, uh, his past that's kind of helping him reconcile everything that he's been through and, and where he should go going forward. So I think um, I've got a little twist, a little twist in there at the end when you realize who who this little girl is. Do you, are you kind of glad that it stayed the story that at its core it seemed to need to be and took out, took it out of the Lyft's universe? Yeah, yeah, I think it, uh, it definitely, um, it improved it for me I was I was happy to write it for the lift um but like I was saying before like I think it was something that I needed to write so badly just for personal reasons that now that it's going to the wicked library it's it's a little bit more of its own piece does that make sense that does make sense I feel so like silly talking about my own (laughs) my own writing it it feels weird, doesn't it? It's like talking about your own, I don't know, journal or something. <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. It's um, it, it's just so awkward sometimes. <laughs> well, and we all got writers in general tend to. I don't think any of us are ever sure that anything we do is very good, but um, it, so it feels kind of funny to talk about it. <laughs> 
Well, um, you should feel confident in the fact that not only has your story been written, it's been out in the world, and now people are listening to it. So you've done it. You've done a good job. <laughs> Just be confident yeah. in that you are here. And, uh, you know, you don't have to prove yourself. You've already proven yourself. Just keep writing things that mean something to you. Yeah, it's very validating. <laughs> <laughs> Does writing drain or energize you? Oh, man, it definitely energizes me. Um, I will finish a story sometimes at, at three o'clock in the morning and then I can't get back to sleep and I'm I'm so excited. It's like a almost like a caffeine rush that you get off of it. At least I do. Um, it, but depending on the story, you know, there's been times where I've had to sleep for a few days afterward. <laughs> but I particularly like like short, I write fairly short pieces most of the time and um so i i kind of get this little boost of power afterwards where i'm like i want to write all the things and then of course i i can't i get like the writer's block for a while afterward so the ones that really energize you have you noticed that there's anything similar with those stories as opposed to the ones that have you sleeping for a few days afterwards i'm not sure um i think the the one, like the most recent one I did uh, that, that made me feel that way was I think anything I write that's where I'm just trying to entertain somebody I know that happens with me a lot where I'll want to write a story um, for someone in my personal life where I'm just trying to entertain that person and then I just get really excited about it and um that that tends to like motivate me and then I just want to keep doing that all the time I think at, at the core like that like no matter what we say about what we're doing as writers the bottom line is we just want to be entertaining like we're just storytellers and it's a lot of fun so I, I always get kind of that feeling it's almost like a similar feeling to like in high school I was in drama and at the end of the show, you know, everybody comes out and takes a bow. And so it's kind of that sort of feeling of having accomplished this little piece of entertainment for somebody. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how I feel. That makes a lot of sense, uh, especially also I come from that background, so I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, so you totally know then. Yeah, it really does feel similar. You finish something and then someone reads it and they, they're like, I actually like this. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, on the flip side of that, for the ones that do drain you, that bring you to darker places, do you do anything to kind of bring yourself back up emotionally, or do you just kind of like allow yourself to reset? Um, the well, the ones that take me to darker places. That it, what's kind of funny about that is a lot of the times it's. I was just talking about this with my sister. Um, I'll, it's like when you'll get an idea in your head about where you think the story is going or what's going to happen with a certain character and then you realize as you're writing that you have to do this terrible thing to this character that you've built that you're actually kind of fond of and so it's sometimes really sad things happen to them and um, it, it, so afterwards you know I, I do sort of um, have to kind of be mindful that I'm going to do something to, to cheer myself up. And so a lot of that just involves comfort food and, and 
watching movies and you know anything you would do after whenever you're feeling kind of down mm-hmm. um or starting a new story helps too so a new story oh starting a new story i heard right news. it's like oh so you write news articles to bring yourself <laughs> up oh what an interesting twist no, no not at all sound, that doesn't sound uplifting <laughs> <laughs> Sounds the opposite. <laughs> a news story. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, on average, how long do you spend working on any one story? Or does it, like, really fluctuate between them? Um, typically I can get a rough draft. Well, I when I was starting out, I would I would only write one story at a time. And I would get a rough draft out in a couple of days, and then I would spend weeks kind of editing that or building on it. Um, but I'm sort of learning as I go still, and I I found that it's it's a lot more productive to work on several pieces at once, and then you're also kind of that helps you be aware of when you're reusing certain tropes or ideas over and over again. It kind of keeps you aware of when you're doing that so um but because i write such short pieces they tend they tend to not take too long it's the editing process that takes several weeks (laughs) so you mostly write short stories i know you're in all sorts of magazines and anthologies are you working on any longer pieces i am attempting to write a collection of shorts right now so it's not I'm still, I still really am fond of that, the short story structure and um, particularly like flash pieces are, are really fun to write. So a thousand words or less, but, um, but I am constantly trying to sort of expand that into longer pieces. I would like to work on a novella that I've outlined. It's just so, it's so nerve wracking. <laughs> Just think of each chapter as a little short story and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, that definitely helps. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Brooke, where can they, uh, they being our listeners, find more about you and your work online? Um, so I do have an author page on Facebook uh, and my under my name, Brooke Wara, and then I can be found on Twitter. And I also have a website I'm just now building on WordPress, so that's at uh, brookwara.com. Awesome. Like, right as you called, I was um, getting all my links organized for that. So Perfect. Now everyone can go find you in one place and be like, whoa. Yes. So everybody who's listening to this, go celebrate the fact that Brooke has a brand new website and leave lots and lots of comments and tell her how awesome she is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Brooke, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your, your voice and your time with us on the Wicked Library. And thank you again for sharing just the truth behind these stories because it was so much more than I even imagined that it would be. Oh, I really appreciate um, appreciate you calling. Well, thank you again for sharing your time, and uh, have a good one, Brooke. You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. 
If you'd like to hear more of Brooke's work, you can hear it in the archives of both the Wicked Library and the Lift, as well as in Under the Bed and Sanitarium magazines. Links to all of these things, as well as the ones that Brooke mentioned during the end of the interview, will be found in the show notes over on thewickedlibrary.com. And you can find me and more interviews with authors of horror and speculative fiction and storytelling and things like that over on the Night Story Podcast. So, what book should we check out this week? Maybe a nice bedtime story that'll lull us to a nice, feverish dream state where we can float around in viscous fluids of blood. (laughs) Oh boy, Uh, I'm gonna go now. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. And all supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. But most importantly, that's how we make the show. Season 7 of the Wicked Library was sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. We were also sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. Recently, the Wicked Library joined a group of podcasters dedicated to producing high-quality shows that are great listening experiences. They include genres from history to fiction, crime stories, but the thing that binds them together, the reason why we joined the group, the reason why we'd like you to check them out, is they explore the darker side of stories. It's a great way to cross genres and discover podcasts you may not have found otherwise. If you head over to darkmyths.org and browse the podcasts, you can try out samples and subscribe to the shows you like. And of course, the Wicked Library remains a proud member of the Society 13 Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows as well as the Wicked Library and The Lift and the Ninth Story Podcast and Prog Watch and the Queens of NC-17 and Red Horse Radio and so on and so forth. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound so good. For complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, you can head over to thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page there. Until next time, don't be a sleepyhead. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Harvey to find you. Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen